Mind Matter Media presents Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, where discussions center around the most current and innovative approaches to landscape conservation and design. This is the show for stakeholders who want to adapt to the climate crisis, halt biodiversity loss, and change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes through collaborative conservation action. Hey everyone, welcome to episode five of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And hi, I'm your other co-host, Tommy Walt. And so Rob, who do we got on the uh, show today? We have a really great episode ahead, Tom. We have Dr. Ronald J. McCormick, an ecologist with the Bureau of Land Management, uh, Ron's joining us today to talk about the very broad subject of complex systems theory, but more specifically, things that we call landscapes, and using conceptual models and ecological modeling to understand those systems. And my favorite subject, landscape conservation design, and I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with Ron. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, um, our topic is landscape conservation. Uh, that's the topic of the podcast. And landscapes are complex ecological and social systems. And uh, as, as landscape practitioners, I think embracing that complexity is an important mindset for designing and planning at a, at a landscape scale. You know, knowing how the elements of the landscape, the patches of land cover, the mosaics in the landscape and how they interact and influence ecosystem health and is essential uh, landscape ecology. So how that intermixes with uh, what Ron's going to be talking about and complex systems. I think it's fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, last episode, we heard from uh, Steve Markison talk about fire, which is a major disturbance on the landscape, or, or is it something that maintains the landscapes? Uh, I would think that complex and systems theory can help us think through some of these uh, landscape events and their impacts over time and space, and uh, it can be a framework for modeling. So I, I will embrace complexity for this podcast, and I look forward to, to hearing Ron's uh, thoughts. Yeah, you know, we devoted the first three episodes of this season's podcast to large-scale change agents, uh, including the climate crisis and wildland fire and human development in the wildland urban interface, as you mentioned, Tom. And we, we mixed in some climate adaptation planning and strategy implementation discussion just to temper the doom and gloom of climate change conversation and we, we did that with intention to provide a foundation for what the conservation sector is currently up against. And we continue to be up against and will continue to do so out into the future, increasingly so, both in scale and intensity, long after you and I are put to rest, Tom. Basically, we want to provide a foundation for advocating for a new approach to conservation. Right. And this is a this is a great episode that could bring together a lot of those different concepts as uh, complex and systems theory really helps us bring a lot of different topics together and provide a framework for modeling, for thinking and uh, and hopefully for communicating some of that complexity on the landscape, because that's such an important part. Um, how do we communicate uh, what we know about ecosystems and and uh, to the public, to uh, decision makers. And uh, that's an important part of landscape conservation is that communication piece. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's bring on uh, Ron and maybe do you have a, a, a bio? OK, without further ado, 
Let me introduce my good friend and co-author of the 2018 paper that the three of us wrote uh, with some additional partners and stakeholders and colleagues. Uh, but today we have Dr. Ronald Ron McCormick. Dr. McCormick is a classically trained field naturalist who came to embrace the ecology of complex systems in his late 30s and has never looked back. With an educational background in soil science, forestry, hydrology, and botany, Ron's early work it took him from the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula to the hills of southeastern Oklahoma and nearly all of Florida. And it was in Florida where he first called himself an ecologist. And it was there that he formed a deep and lasting land ethic. Ron's decades of thinking about and applying systems theory to social ecological problems have led him to landscape conservation and landscape conservation design, what society desperately needs, as he says, at this critical juncture. His day job is as an ecologist for the Bureau of Land Management, which offers him access to wild places where he photographs wild spaces. Yeah, no, I've uh, having worked with uh, with Ron on our our paper that we developed, the the ICAST platform nine principles for landscape conservation design. I know that Ron has a far ranging intellectual background for thinking about complex systems. So, Ron, uh, just as a as a starting question, what are what are some of the frameworks uh, that you find useful and helpful for understanding ecosystems and landscapes? And and is there anything that we missed in in that bio? There, there are paradigms. There are ways you think about things. Systems is a meta paradigm. It's the way you think about, it's how we think about the way we think about things. You, you always, in systems, you abstract back one level in the system and start looking there before you look at what's right in front of your face. So, so like, uh, you know, Rob said during my bio, yeah, I was, I, uh, you know, was in Florida for seven years out in the field virtually every day. But yeah, those are the two things that I learned working there was, you know, walk around, observe, know where you are, know what, know what's going on, know everything that's going on. Just, you know, certainly I knew a lot about botany, but I also did birds. We had to do fauna. We had to do humans. We had a well field that I worked on. So you, you started to see all those things. And at that time, Florida, you know, 800 people moved in every day. So I was working for a consultant company that basically was was making that work. We put in the roads and the buildings and the shopping centers. So I got to see that economic driver as well as the ecological side. And before then, um, you were Dr. Tim Allen's student. I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't. I didn't have a way of organizing it. I didn't have a way of thinking through it and what systems does and what uh, toward a unified ecology. Tim's Tim's probably major work um, that you know every everybody who calls himself an ecologist or or uh, even an environmentalist should should read because it takes it takes that old rule of thumb country vicar naturalist jargon you know like it's this and this there's always a special name because we didn't have a way to to separate you know if you got an organism on an organism well it can't be both organisms so we call one a parasite or a symbiote or you know there's there's something else about it and unified ecology just teaches you there are only six types you know there's there's 
processes, population, ecosystem. Then there's community, landscape, biome, you know, our structural aspects. So you always have, if you have a structure, then you have to have a process, then you have a structure. All at different scales, all operating at different spatial and temporal scales. And if you start sorting any system, including every societal and economic system, it's just ecology using different words. So that was the biggest thing to come out of, of my time working in Madison. You came out of Madison and you, uh, you, you got your, your PhD there and um, then you, you moved on to, to where? I was dealing with uh, Endangered Species Task Force. So we were trying to uh, develop protections from applying you know, crop protection products, what the rest of the world calls pesticides, pesticides, herbicides, and uh, rodenticides, insecticides, all the sides. So it was very ecological and you had to understand habitat. You had to understand applications, you had to understand transport through water or different media, air. So it, it did really help. Uh, it, it just wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was a good starting job and then got hired uh, by probably the, uh, the third person that really helped me focus and train how I operate now, Larry Kapuska up in uh, Calgary, Alberta. So we started doing human health and ecological risk assessments for the uh, oil sands in northern Alberta um, and also worked on a, a diamond mine in the Northwest Territories. So that, that, is, that is like the epitome of a large, complex, social, ecological landscape that you have to understand not only just the the basics, but you have to understand the drivers, you know, working in the oil sands, anything below $100 a barrel, they just weren't making any money. Anything above, it was great, you know. And so when oil prices dropped down to 60, we all got fired, which again, teaches teaches you a lot about paying attention to something outside of just your focus, which is which is my my biggest problem why I've never wanted to to work in a at a university because you know, you have to specialize. I always like the jack of all trades. It's a it's a great statement, but the full statement is jack of all trades, master of none. And I would say that's exactly who I am. I know a lot about a bunch of small things, but I'm really not a master of any particular subject. Yeah, I often think of that as a, a great set of uh, skills or mindset for looking at landscapes, know, you, knowing the, the pieces and how they, they come together. But if you go too far into one piece uh, of the puzzle, you'll you lose the the perspective of the of the broader landscape. So I'm a geographer, and we're very much like that in terms of uh, yeah, you know, a little bit. Your your knowledge is uh, is a mile wide and an inch deep, and um, that you you know, you try to find those people that are are experts in things. And indeed, uh, you know, geography is is kind of similar. The art of putting things together and uh, making interactions between those uh, all those different elements of the landscape. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, thinking of Rob's book. And as, as I told you before the, before we started, I'm drive basically driving cross country. I left Virginia a couple of days ago and I'm now sitting in New Mexico, you know, and coming through the Ozarks and, and thinking about, well, where's the, where's nature's 50% here. And there's a lot of it there because, because of the Hills, because of the way you, the way humans can make a living there is very small, very specific and, takes a lot of work and then as i come down out of the ozarks into cotton country i mean day a day and a half of seeing nothing but huge flat expanses of cotton stubble but that's what was growing there that's most of what i've seen and then getting into west texas went more to just you know open field which i assume they're, they're grain or wheat or something they're growing there and the minute i started getting to the edge of new mexico all of a sudden choya mesquite 
you know, some of the tall bunch grasses, it was day and a half of there is, there's 2% that is nature's part right there. And now right where I'm sitting, I'd say you're, you know, depending on the, the grazing, it's still maybe, you know, 40% nature. So these are the, these are all the issues we have to think about if we're trying to get to the 50-50 part is the economics change with each ecoregion you're working in, the economy change, the society changes, the way the way you can live on a landscape changes. And that's why I'm not an expert in any of those, but I know to find those people. That's a, a, a main tenant of landscape conservation and, and more importantly, landscape conservation design, uh, that ability to look outside of our silos, look outside of our colleagues and reach out to the broader community to try and bring those folks into the process and acquire their information, their expertise, their information about their landscape, and hopefully through that process, be able to build a systems vision for the landscape. Uh, we use conceptual models to try and make sense uh, of all that information that is compiled do you, do you want to speak to, maybe this is an appropriate time to kind of speak to conceptual models or modeling in general, Ron, if you'd like to, and then we could loop back around and talk about uh, landscape conservation, landscape conservation design. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I mean, certainly that's a, been a big part of my focus in education. My, my master's was in hydrologic modeling and my dissertation was in uh, wildfire spread modeling. But again, I, I look back through all the theory of why we thought fire spread in a certain way. And it goes back to a model by Rothermel that was done, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies. To this day, I still hear people talking about using that model. And, and my question was, well, is there a different way that we can think about this? Can we use and we use something, you know, what, what are the things that w- you ask the question, how do you know what you think you know? We think we know that Rothbard Mel's models are perfect for doing wildfire spread. Maybe they're not, you know, well, how do you, how do we know that? And so, so I basically got somebody to agree to let me use artificial neural networks, you know, what's driving chat GPT right now to see if we could not tell a computer how wildfire spreads, but just let the computer figure it out. Ron, what did the computer tell you uh, different from the previous model? Um, this, well, this is always the problem with, with using, you know, sort of black, black box uh, computer modeling. It doesn't, you, 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 you can't know. It doesn't tell you anything except I figured out a way to get this to work. Um, you know, it only worked on, it worked in the, you know, province 212 eco region, you know, the northern, northern uh, Great Lakes areas, uh, you know, going over through the shield in Canada up to Maine. So that area worked fine. I don't know if it works anyplace else. You know, again, we never, we never tried it. We never expanded it. What it taught me, though, was all of the inputs that we, that we used for most of the models that existed at that time. And, and you know, this is, this is 19, uh, this is mid-90s. So, you know, both the, both the modeling systems were archaic and, and, you know, the available data we had were minimal. I couldn't get those models to actually work because conceptually I was trying to use all the inputs that everybody else did. When I took out all the derived products, you know, the things that we as humans said, this is important. This is what we need. I took all those out and just started feeding it raw imagery, you know, whether just the basics, then it started to work. 
So it was, you know, and and Tim Allen's favorite saying is modeling is seeing whatever's in the boat, tossing it all over the side until you just get the components that still make you float. So it's those sorts of things when it comes to conceptually modeling that you have to really start thinking about, do I really need this? It'd be fun to have, be fun to do, but yeah, maybe you don't necessarily need that. And probably as as the peak of my modeling career, the diamond mine that I mentioned earlier up in the Northwest Territories had basically four phases, you know, the planning, the construction operation, which was going to be 30 to 50 years. And that's a, you know, that's a lifetime for anybody doing the study. And then closeout. And the closeout was going to be hundreds of years because of the, the it was a three mile deep mine pit. Um, there was a waste pile that was going to be the highest thing from basically the beginning of, of uh, Northwest Territories to the Arctic. That was going to be a brand new mountain. And because of the pressure of a rock and the overburden, it wouldn't freeze for a hundred years. So we had all those things to put together. So I put together a conceptual model of those four phases, but then also looked at local, regional, territory-wise, and global, and asked questions at each of those scales in each of those time periods. So it was a 16-part model that turned out to be, you know, like 75 linked diagrams within Visio, uh, because it was we were dealing with uh, Dene uh, groups, and the visual aspect we wanted to have to show, you know, we, we understand you, you live, work and play here. We understand the society. We understand the pressures that mining would have. So we had to include the economics. We had to include disturbance to society, but disturbance to the ecology. And it was really fun to do. And I'm going to say it again. Yeah, we got fired at the end of that because the project engineer didn't understand it and didn't want us uh, working on the project anymore. Yeah, no, modeling is, is uh, it's tough business. I know, you know, landscapes, are kind of abstract concepts in many ways. When you were talking about how you're driving through the landscapes of, of America and you went from one to another, you, you don't really know where they, they begin or end. And they're kind of these, these elements that you, you, know, you can't grasp without information and data from satellite images or GIS uh, and, and also local knowledge as well that all fits in there. How do you bring that together in a, in a modeling framework that is is useful for making decisions um i i tend to think that all models are are wrong but but some models are useful right there's uh like you were saying there's basic inputs that can go into the model that could provide useful information if it resonates with uh, decision makers um you know from your perspective uh, what are some of the the most useful models that that you've been a part of or seen uh in in your work for for landscape scale decision-making that, that might support a, a design or planning effort? Models, again, are usually very, very useful, but people always try and stretch them beyond their foundations. That's the, that's the biggest issue. And again, if you, if you, you know, systems ecology teaches you to think about what's the level that you're asking the question, what's the level above it, what's the level below it. When you change a level in a system, you change scale. When you change scale, you change the drivers of that system. You change the context. You change the constraints. So a model developed at one level in a complex system will not work at a lower or a higher level. We forget that all the time. You know, most modelers only deal with the one part they're looking at and maybe the level below it or maybe the level above it and usually nothing more than that. But it looks really good. You can get it all to work. You can, you know, run the run the bad words of verification and validation. So no model is valid. You just can confirm it works the way you want it to. That's really what it comes down to. 
uh, I think it's Naomi Oreskes has a has a really nice paper on validation verification. Not really good words to use. You can confirm that it works, but basically that's all you can do with models. And we should think about that more. Um, you know the the what used to be called general circulation models, but are now global system models. You know basically all they're doing is they're moving air around the world in in three degree blocks, and they're checking to see the temperature. And I'm being asked as a land manager to downscale those very actually crude models. Yeah, they may they may appear to be complex, but they're actually just pretty crude models. And try and understand what we what happened, what that what effect a change in climate will have on a plant community. And you can't you can't make that transition because everything changes at each level you come down. So the models that we're working with right now, and I'm gonna throw in my disclaimer that Everything that I'm saying in this talk is my personal opinion. It is not the opinion of or reflect the views of the agency I work for or any other federal agency that I'm associated with. So just forgot to throw that at the beginning. But the best models that we have right now are ecological sites, state and transition models, ecological site groups that deal with a landscape that is that has a single dominant and many associated characteristics that we can identify that we feel statistically safe with drawing a line around something. And that's the modeling that we have to use right now. We, I'm, I'm glad somebody's doing global modeling. I really am. It does, it does inform us about things. It's nothing I can use today to work on the land. Because again, we don't know where anything's going. We're in a novel absolute novel uh, situation. Your previous podcast talking about fire and everybody's going, well, yeah, it's going to burn. We're not sure when, we're not sure how hot, we're not sure where, you know, we know it will though. And so that sort of complex ecological description that is an ecological site and is an ecological site group are the best models that we can use right now if we're going to start doing landscape conservation design. You raise a very good point there, Ron, about the the limitations of modeling. I want to tie this conversation back to our listeners um, and hopefully make it useful to them, you know, stakeholders in the landscape who are thinking about doing design work uh, to guide their collective uh, application of management actions and otherwise development actions within the landscape. Maybe this whole idea of modeling and or using conceptual models for the complexity of a landscape just isn't worth the, the time and energy, given what you, the sort of information you're going to get back from those exercises. I do agree. I think that conceptual modeling is absolutely necessary and well worth the time. And any, any risk assessment that Larry and I ever worked on, we always factored in the first 50% of the job is going to be sitting down and developing a conceptual model of, of the system. Everything we can think of, all the externalities, all of what we call internals, and in, in really understanding their connection, the effect. There may be a ton of things that are in the system, but you could model them to death and they'd have, you know, one half of 1% effect on, on what your final output is. So, you know, it's always, always in modeling. It's like, that would be nice to have. Is it really going to help us? But, but I think the, the unified ecology I was talking about earlier, thinking about structure versus process, 
and knowing that if you have a structure, there's a process above it and a process below it that both uh, constrains that structure, you know, so like a forest system, a forest community has ecosystem processes and population processes that keep it what we recognize as a forest community. So you can do that with social ecological systems. And I think um, in particular, when you're talking about landscape conservation design, you have to include the humans. You have to understand that their ecosystem is information and money primarily. But again, it's also water, water source, uh, seed shed, food shed, all of those aspects that keep humans on a landscape and allow them to actively or passively manage that landscape to maintain or, or direct it into a state that is desired, which is, which is what you know, ICAST, basically, if you follow that process, gets you to that point, then that's really all you need. You know, lo- local knowledge is important. Indigenous knowledge is important, knowing what you can do with the system, knowing what the possibilities are, and also knowing where the where the boundaries are. If you're in, we were just talking about Scotland or Ireland, if you're in Ireland and you drive 500 miles and don't go over a cliff, then, you know, your model says, I can keep driving another 500 miles. You go another mile and you go off the cliff some more. So it's the boundaries that are important. And most of what we model is the center because that's statistically defensible. You you really need to think about what the, your limits are and what inputs are coming into as well as going out of your system. So water, I think water is important. I think seeds are important. Just coming across Texas, thinking about how monoculture that is, thinking about if if for some reason you couldn't export out of there and you couldn't import in, you know, do they have, could you grow enough food? You've got enough land, but could you actually grow enough food? Do you have enough water to support everybody, you know? These are the these are the questions that are to me are more important than worrying about uh, what a climate model is going to offer you. What if we could rescue the planet from the ravages of the climate crisis and, in the process, save a million species from extinction? Would we do it? Former U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Senior Policy Advisor for the National Wildlife Refuge System, Robert Campoloni, explores the United States' most pressing conservation challenge since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the triple planetary crisis, pollution, climate boiling, and biodiversity loss. In Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050, Campoloni reveals previous nationwide initiatives to design sustainable and resilient landscapes, provides an easy-to-follow how-to guide for taking a collaborative, science-based approach to identify conservation actions across large landscapes, and advocates for taking a third nationwide try to design nature's half. Learn how to take a synergistic approach to mitigating the climate crisis and conserving biodiversity in Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050 and be part of the global movement to save the planet. For more information, visit www.designingnatureshalf.com. Yeah, some of the most useful modeling are collaborative kind of situation modeling where people identify what their goals and targets are, what what they want to protect on the landscape, what's important, what are the things that people care about, and then and then it's more of a non-quantitative looking at, um, yeah, what are the stressors and what are the contributing factors that cause those stressors? And then getting people to agree on, on that 
you know, conceptual model. It's not a, a quantitative model per se, but getting a common understanding of the, the major drivers on the landscape, I think has been really important. And then, you know, kind of getting at the ICAST framework, you might then start bringing in various data sets that were developed through models, like, for example, a habitat connectivity model or a, a model that shows biological hotspots, and then collaboratively co-designing based upon those those models. So, um, you know, whether there's the one model for the landscape that will rule them all, I don't, you know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, that will have every input and output, but I think conceptually understanding the landscape and then bringing in various landscape models that represent those those factors of, of things that people care about and um, understanding the uncertainty associated with that, but having enough information then to collaboratively design what uh, what those models are, are telling us. I think there's there's some value in, in a modeling or using models like that. I, I have seen a lot of processes, um, you know, spend okay, let's spend three years waiting for the perfect model to come out. And that rarely is a good sign when that, when that happens. Some of the things that we've been playing around with recently, and we were, we were doing it when I was still in Canada, are, are using Bayesian belief networks, uh, you know, Bayesian inference models, because they're, they're very good about, you can just use expert knowledge. If you don't know the exact number, you can say high, medium, and low, and you can you know rank things or connect things or disconnect things, and you can put in lots of modules, but you don't have to use them all. So structurally, it's much more, I think it's more intuitive for somebody who's not a modeler to understand how they fit together. And also, it's a good, because it's visual, it's a good place to start discussing. If you've got your experts and I have my experts and my expert says X and your expert says Y, you can punch X into the system, see what comes out, put Y into the system, see what comes out. And if the answer is virtually the same, then you realize X and Y aren't that important. Let's focus on something else. I really liked uh, your previous response, Ron, when you were talking about the importance of trying to understand the connections between uh, the socio side of the model and the ecological side of the, the model and the relationship between the two. In landscape conservation design, I think it's incredibly important to be thinking about the socio-ecological system as a whole, as opposed to thinking about the ecological system and thinking about connectivity modeling and, and where can we get the most bang for the buck. No doubt, incredibly important work. Really glad that design community is is moving into that space and doing that work, trying to implement those connectivity designs on the ground 100%. But I think the next iteration, the next, you know, the future of landscape design work is moving beyond that. And how do we do that? And as it pertains to this particular episode of our podcast, how can modeling contribute to that exercise, that evolution in design? It's incredibly complex, but it's something that if we're thinking about designing sustainable uh, landscapes, we got to crack that code. Any thoughts there, Ron? Yeah, I, I usually use sustainability is, is like the, it's the goal. It's the top part. We really, it's really hard to pin down. Resilience is actually the thing that we can do. That's the, that's the part we can work on. Modeling can help us with that. But it, to me, resilience comes down to figuring out what 
people need to stay on a landscape, to live, work, and play there, to make a living, but also only take what they need, not more than, not think about economics as your driver, but think about place and being. When we were working in the Walla Walla, there was a guy that uh, grew strawberries, a huge field of strawberries, you know, hundreds of acres. And it was a senior water rights user. And the Walla Walla used to go dry every year for 60 years. Um, so salmon populations, you people, uh, you know, the tribes and the local people would be out uh, filling buckets up with with fish and trucking them up to the uh, top of the watershed. And when we, when we sat down and talked to him, we said, well, I don't care if I grow strawberries. He enjoyed employing a bunch of high school kids during the summer to come in and work on the farm, teaching them community, teaching them connection to the community, connection to the land, getting a job, being responsible, showing up on time, all of those things. So we started to think, well, OK, so if we can figure out a way you could do that without taking half of your water right out of, this, of the, the river every year. Would that work? And and he was going, yeah, we could probably get, make that work. So, so you have to do both. You have to have the large conceptual. Here's the structure of this landscape and what we want from it. What we expect for goods and services to come off that. How many people that will support? How will the people manage that system? But it's also down to the individual person as well. So it's all those levels in the system. And yeah, that's just really complicated to the point of being, yeah, just complex. Just un, If you can't model it, it's complex. If you can model it, it's just really complicated. So if you can start modeling things, then you know you're at least getting somewhere because if you don't have a model, it's the system is too complex the way you're looking at it. You got to rethink the way you, you approach it. Right. As you talk about complexity, kind of I reflect upon current's role in the, I, I work too for the federal government. And like you, uh, disclaimer, nothing I'm saying is uh, on their behalf or um, contradictory to, a, to what they're doing. You know, I feel like the way that we've created uh, these government bureaucracies, they all operate within a particular silo where one is focused on forestry and one is focused on endangered species. Another bureaucracy is focused on water or, or these particular land management units and feels like bracing complexity becomes a little bit more difficult uh, when you have these these uh, these kind of rigid distinctions and each one has kind of created their own, uh, you know, kind of agency and organization that they want to maintain and, uh, and and not necessarily cross lines. And sometimes I feel like the kind of the structure of the government is is somewhat opposed to this concept of holistic landscape management, not because they don't think it's a good idea. It's just that the that's the way that has formed over the past uh, century in terms of our natural resource bureaucracies. Um, there, there's a question in there somewhere, but, you know, is there a way to to move beyond that? You know, I, th I thought the landscape conservation cooperatives were kind of getting there as a way to bring people together to have a holistic look at the at the landscape. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or at to what extent are we doing that in the agency world? Or are there roles for NGOs to to do that? I don't know. Just a, a very broad question about complexity and and how you work with that within a, within our siloed world. Yes, narrative matters. Fire, fire is bad. Fire takes out communities. Fire, you know, burns saleable timber. Fire does this and that. Um, so for decades, the narrative, the zero-dimensional narrative is fire bad, put every fire out. But then as we, you know, as the 70s came in and we couldn't put every fire out, climate warmed up and dried out. And all of a sudden we were getting these, you know, the Yellowstone fires happened and nobody thought they could ever burn that, that amount of, of area in one fire. But you add dimension to the narrative and that's 
part of what uh, landscape conservation design, the LCCs, ICAS, that's what all of these things are doing in different ways, is fire, yes, fire on the landscape, yes. Yes, it, it can take out communities and we should you know, do what we can to give them defensible space. But it also, if you're in a jack pine community, it's the renewal process. You do have to burn it at some point. If you, if you work in a longleaf pine in Florida every three to five years, you want to burn it just to keep the understory down, keep it an open forest. In So as agencies, yes, we have dogma. We, this is the way we have always done things. Um, sometimes we have conflicting legislation that says you will do this and you will do this. We'll protect endangered species, but we'll also try to eliminate fire. Sometimes that's in opposition to each other. What you need to do for fire is, you know, fire fire breaks, thinning, all of that. There may be species that are dependent on both fire and those denser, thicker communities. So you have to have a narrative that includes all of the dimensions. And from that, then you can have a conversation. If you're just saying Green New Deal, 100% all over the place, do it, that doesn't have any of the complexity about how you could possibly put all of this, you know, all, all electricity just driving across the last section of Texas I was in, we had about 100 windmills that weren't turning, yet the wind here is in the 30 mile an hour range today. So again, why not? What was happening? Where where in the system did that? Because right across the highway, there was a whole group that were. So it's a very Gordian knot type of system that we have brought ourselves to. And unraveling it is going to be clumsy. We're going to make mistakes. Um, but, you know, if we don't try... Uh, we we know what will happen. Yeah, you know, Tom. I my response would be uh, building upon what Ron just mentioned. I think there's a general recognition, and there has been a recognition over the past 25, 30 years, if not longer, that any one single entity in the landscape, whether it be an agency or uh, an NGO or a state uh, organization, uh, no one entity has the ability to kind of untie that knot alone. And, you know, we missed a really great opportunity with the LCCs, uh, which was that bridging entity, that convening body that brought everyone together to try and untie that knot. And um, they're gone now. And we really need to begin to think about what is the next iteration of the LCCs. Who uh, and what uh, is that next convening body? that next bridging organization that's going to bring landscape stakeholders together to work together through a design process, in my mind, and I don't think either of you will push back on that, but working through a, a design process to untie that knot. I think Ron was correct in stating that, you know, sometimes the agencies have conflicting missions, uh, if not uh, adaptive management approaches to how they want to proceed in untying that knot. But collectively, all sitting around the table, I think we'll be able to smooth out those disagreements and begin to work together to do that. At least I hope so. Uh, that's the the very basic tenet of uh, landscape conservation design. As you guys know, I guess I'm kind of speaking more directly to our listeners uh, here, and I'll give you guys an opportunity to chime in. But 
you know, there's there's landscape partnerships already in place all over the country. And they're trying their best to come up with adaptation strategies to address the the wicked problem that we face. But in my mind, um, only going through a thoughtful participatory design process will they actually be able to come up with some strategies at the tail end of that process. And I'll turn it over to you guys for any thoughts you have in that regard. Uh, yeah, I agree. And and honestly, I do feel that within the multiple federal agencies, uh, both uh, interior and agriculture, there is a, a definite recognition and a consensus that says we have to stop worrying about where our boundaries are. We have to des- we have to think about and design cross boundaries cooperatively, and we and we are in many places. We just have to sort of ramp up that concept to actually do good eco regional plans, and then allow people within that either private NGOs, cooperative groups, other agencies, state agencies, state wildlife groups, they can tier up to what the larger eco regional plan is. And they can do smaller projects that, you know, fit within their budget and their knowledge and their expertise. And I think that's how we do it. The LCCs were never supposed to be top down, but I think they were also a little bit too hands off by some of the federal agencies. Um, some of them worked very well, some didn't. I think this is going to have to be all stakeholders, eco-regional planning, but individual groups do their own work, come up with their own projects that fit within the, the larger plan. Yeah, no, right. I I agree with that. And I think uh, having that kind of from the ground up process, you do see that. um, I see that in Oregon and likely in other places around the the U.S., I'm I'm sure, uh, that you get these uh, landscape partnerships that uh, develop out of the shared understanding that there's an issue that no one organization can address themselves. And so they, they embark on a process. And what better way to deal with the complexity of a of a landscape than have as many of uh, the local stakeholders play a role in conversation and dialogue and thinking through conceptual models for the landscape. You know, I think what is needed is some of those landscape partnerships uh, need support to keep going and they need uh, some science and information and and they need that uh, kind of, um, you know, I think what the LCCs could have provided was support directly to those uh, on the you know those emerging landscape partnerships, and I think that would be a great model to have some sort of a, a body that provides either uh, financial or technical support to keep those those partnerships going. Because you know when you think about landscape, you think about a, a particular geographic area, but it's also a temporal uh, aspect. So a big problem is that these partnerships form, and then okay, then they may get together, have some meetings, and and then you know there's entropy enters in, and so they they need to have a longer, you know, 20 to 30 year time frame for thinking and for maintaining that partnership. But yeah, no, to me, that some sort of system like that would be a way to get around the, the siloed world that we are, are, which is the status quo. The way I think of uh, landscape conservation and the design process to further landscape conservation is this multi-jurisdictional, multi-sector, stakeholder-driven, participatory science process. Uh, And by science, I don't necessarily mean just the natural sciences, but also the social and economic uh, systems as well. And 
The challenge in developing that system, as you mentioned, Tom, is that there's no convening body to do it. You know, we we lost that opportunity with the LCCs, and uh, Biden administration isn't currently stepping up and and filling that void. Though they've put out a great thirty by thirty initiative, basically asking partnerships to kind of identify priority conservation areas within the landscape, but. It's really kind of hard to do that if there is no convening body. You know, if there was a a, a Biden administration part 2.0 in later this year, you know, my brothers would be for the administration to begin to think about putting that convening body in place to pull these partnerships together, to work together through a facilitated process to design sustainable landscapes. My agency, uh, again, my views of what my agency is doing is very much focused on in, you know, in the next 14 months or I guess we're down to, you know, 10 or 12 months that we can uh, implement. They're very focused on restoration, very focused on resilience. Uh, Again, yeah, it depends on what happens uh, next November. Um, But I think we've we've got a structure that we can use to do that. And I think we can bring the rest of the, the federal agency, federal land management agencies in. We just got to figure out what the politics and the economics are going to be, you know, for the next five to 10 years. Thanks, Ron. Tom, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, no. um, You know, I don't want to kind of speak about the political wins uh, in the future, but I think this is uh, something we should be um, thinking of regardless. Uh, There's just something that needs to happen through um, developing these landscape partnerships and uh, thinking at that landscape scale, because that that way you can tackle multiple of these uh, complex issues together by by having that landscape perspective you're to bring it back to complexity i mean yeah landscapes are complex systems and we have the people uh and we have information and data and science that, that can help us support making good decisions um and better decisions uh that are optimal for sustainability and so yeah that's my hope and um that's kind of what i feel like this whole landscape conservation is and design is all about so Uh, I love the conversation, and um, I'll kick it back to you, Rob. Okay, well, thanks again to our guest, Dr. Ronald J. McCormick, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I've been your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And I've been your other co-host, Tom Ewald. Join us every two weeks for another informative episode of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. Thank you. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, is researched, written, edited, and produced by Rob Campoloni and Tom Mewald. Lucas Gallardi created the Designing Nature's Half cover art and logo design. Tom Askin is the voice behind the intro and outro. And the music was written and performed by composer Alexi Kistlin via Pixabay. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, is a proud member of Mind Matter Media, a startup multimedia network whose mission is to change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes for people, planet, and prosperity.